All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for saving us, even daily. Thank you for sanctifying us. Thank you for justifying us, for it's through justification that we are sanctified even. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross, so that even a night like this one is possible. Thank you. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 39. Uh, Tuesday's class, we didn't finish. Uh, we started with a wonderfully enlightening passage, though. Go to Romans 8.28. We read more of it leading up to Romans 8.28, but we're going to start with Romans 8.28 because he wants us to have a moment with the concept of predestination. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. So for those whom He foreknew, he also predestined, and that word predestined is from pro orizo up here on the board. In the Greek, predestined, it means to predetermine, to foreordain. Foreordain just means, you know, before, ordained before. To mark out, to appoint beforehand refers to pre-established boundaries. An example, before creation. Predestination is part of God's divine decree. So, in other words, when you look at the concept of predestination, being predestined, all of your salvation, your sanctification, all the things that we've been talking about for months now, were already added to your account before you were even born. All the blessings, all the things that he had in store for you, uh, they were already added to your account. You are predestined, in other words, to receive them. And that's part of his decree. So that's what predestined means, or predestination as a concept means. It's important that you understand it because that's really fundamental to that bigger picture perspective, God's perspective. Remember, God's not bound by the construct of time. Even though we're studying out salvation in tenses even, in sanctification eventually in phases, that's a human viewpoint thing, as we'll see in a moment. So uh, predestined, uh, again, is really God's way of sort of showing us that he's guaranteed the things that he's promised uh, even before we were born. Okay. Again, Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's a whole string of pearls that go along with this concept. 
I wouldn't spend too much time trying to dissect them. You might uh, spend too much time doing that thing when you really uh, got other sort of fish to fry. Um, nothing wrong with studying those things out. We've studied out called and calling not that long ago, maybe a year ago now. Uh, justification, we studied that out in brief two parts uh, before we got into this particular series. Uh, and then maybe someday we'll do glorification. We've done that in brief in the past. But predestination is related to all these things, in other words. Okay? The Spirit summarized this big picture perspective for us, and that's what he's really trying to get us situated into in our studies is a big picture. He does not want us to let go of this big picture. God saves and sanctifies. He saves us from sin. He sanctifies us to himself. These are two sides of the same coin, both guaranteed for the believer. Analogs are, not exclusively, you know, repent and believe, receive faith, or confess and press on, which, you know, really has to do with obedience, being filled with the Spirit, etc., etc. That's what it means to be saved and sanctified. And in keeping with the coin analogy, it's impossible for a person to give another only one side of a coin. So that's how you should think about it. If you're saved, you're sanctified. A believer receives both sides of the coin. And that's a guarantee. When we receive Christ, we receive all of Him. He is our Savior, our Sanctifier, our Deliverer. Speaking of deliverance, what is deliverance? This is one way to think about it. The front side of the coin, salvation, relates to sin. So when you think of the doctrine or any portion of the doctrine of salvation, regardless of how we're choosing to carve it up to learn it, uh, salvation always relates to sin. Whereas the backside of the coin, sanctification, relates to righteousness. In other words, he saves you from the domain of darkness and moves you to the domain of light. Darkness being sin, light being righteousness. And that's the deliverance. So deliverance is a movement, if you would. You're delivered um, from one domain to the next. And that's a nice way to think about it. So deliverance may be thought of as flipping Uh, the flipping of the coin in the life of a believer. A believer is delivered from sin to righteousness, from domain of darkness to the domain of light, from death to life, etc. Okay? And that's a nice way to think about deliverance, deliverance being the movement even. Deliverance is understood when we finish our sentences, in other words. So you can't just understand how God saves you, and that's the gospel even. You have to understand that when God saves you, he guarantees, he predestined you to sanctify you as well. So he doesn't just save, he saves and sanctifies. And that's why you keep hearing these terms together and together and together. And as we saw Tuesday evening, even sometimes when we're talking about salvation, experiential salvation, the Bible uses the word sanctify. They're They're very close relatives in other words. And that's what I was saying earlier. You shouldn't spend too much time trying to, you know, etch it out and carve out this thing and that. There's just way too much interrelationship between these concepts. Okay? So you have to elevate your thinking. Deliverance is understood when we finish our sentences. The analogy we used was a Domino's pizza delivery analogy, which actually, I think it did a decent job uh, you know, again, they make like 400 and something million pizzas for a purpose. And that was the concept. 
They make pizzas for a purpose. To what? To be delivered. They don't just make them, pull them out of the oven and throw them in the dumpster. They make them to be delivered. In other words, the person who makes the pizza has predestined them for delivery. Right? Before they even, you know, do that funny thing that Italian people do. Right, Michael? Right? The Italian thing, they whip that pizza dough way up in the end and they catch it sometimes. They th- before any of that happens, they whip the sauce around and they put it in the oven. Before, before any of that happened, an order came in. Right? And you might think of that as God's decree. We got a believer. We're going to make a pizza. Let's do it. And he didn't just, didn't just take the pizza out and throw it in the, out in the street. He says, this pizza is going to be delivered. It's predestined. Before I even put sauce on it, before I even put it in the oven, this pizza is going to be delivered. And that's how you think about predestination. Every believer was made, purpose made. It was God's purpose to make you. It was God's purpose to make you, to save you, and to sanctify you, therefore delivering you to bring glory to himself. Does that make sense? That's part of the whole predestination landscape. And all of that happened before you were even born. You might say, well, how'd that work? i gotta, you know, I got to be able to believe. Yeah, he's not bound by time. He knew who was going to say yes to the gospel and who wasn't. We call that election. He elected you, however you'd like to look at it. He knew through omniscience, you know, foreknowledge, if you want to get more specific. And with that foreknowledge, he predestined you. Isn't that awesome? And that, when you think about predestination in that context, it really does take a lot of the weight off. Because you have to say to yourself, wait a minute, do you mean anything that's really going to sanctify me has already been planned out? So I don't have to put necessarily man-made effort in the, into the issue? No, you don't. So it kind of relieves pressure when you understand something as, quote, lofty as predestination. It relieves some of the pressure that you might put on yourself in the process of self-sanctification. In any case, every believer was made to be delivered, Romans 8, 29, 30. In this sense, your deliverance is part of God's divine decree and... When God decrees something, guess what? It's absolute. If he says, and he does, in the Bible, that when he saves you, he's going to sanctify you, guess what? He does. He does. And that's the way it goes. Predestination is part of God's decree. It has been foreordained since before human history. Up here on the board. It is a subset of foreordination. Some theologians put them really close together. Uh, I like to think of foreordination as a bigger umbrella, things other than just a believer, you know, foreordained even unbelievers, right? He foreordained even um, nature, you know, this kind of a thing. I think of foreordination as a broader scope. But predestination is a subset of things that he foreordained. It refers to the destiny of believers specifically regarding things that are guaranteed to the saved. Believers were predestined before human history even began as part of God's divine decree. Romans 8, 29 and 30, we just looked at that. That was what instigated this. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 and 3, 11 to 12. Hold your thumb, go to Ephesians 1, 3. We'll check out some scripture. 
Again, predestination refers to the destiny of believers, specifically regarding things that are guaranteed to the saved. Believers were predestined before human history even began as part of God's divine decree. We looked at Romans 8, 29 and 30. Let's look at Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay, All those blessings, part of your predestination. Just as He chose us in Him, that's a reference to election, I alluded to that earlier. Just as He chose us, and He chose you before you were even born, knowing what you would choose for or against Christ. You chose for Christ, so He chose you. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us. So you know that love is what motivates grace. Grace, uh, predestination is a grace gift. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Remember, His will is to save everyone. Uh, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespassers. That trespasses, that's how we're delivered or saved from the issue of sin, right? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him. So all of this, the decree, uh, we may not see all His purposes, but we have to understand them to be exact and absolute. He has a purpose in predestining, pre, uh, predestination for you with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things, uh, all things after the counsel of His will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's part of eternal security. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Now, when you read Ephesians 1, all you can think about is grace, right? I mean, look at all the stuff that He's doing and look at how nothing we do. Seriously. I mean, everything that's good that we have, the blessings, everything wrapped under this term predestination is by grace. And it was in love and it was for the purpose of His goodwill, as we just read. So really, you know, He's the only person that has the right to be egocentric, right? And so he is, and that's a very good thing, because he can be. He's God. Again, predestination is part of God's decree up here on the board. It's a subset of foreordination, refers to the destiny of believers, specifically regarding things that are guaranteed to the saved. Believers were predestined before human history even began as part of God's divine Decree. We just looked at Ephesians 1. Go to Ephesians 3.11. Ephesians 
That's the other verse listed there. We're just padding this thing. We're seeing scripture so you understand. This mystery doctrine, so to speak, was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith, always by grace, in him. So this predestination is part of his eternal purpose. He predestined you and blessed you out and made you to be delivered to bring glory to himself because it's by the grace of God through faith that you're delivered. Amen? That's what he's doing. And that's what all of Paul's saying. He's just saying, look at the big picture. It's all God's will to save and sanctify you and deliver you. And when that happens, and it will, he gets the glory. And that's done by grace through faith, which sounds just like what? The verse that's squeezed in between Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. All right, back to where we first noted the term predestined, Romans 8, 29. Go there. Romans 8, 29. <clears throat> Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And again, Paul uses past tense there to stress the certainty of it all. The reason for the emphasis on predestination tonight is to get you thinking in absolute certainty about salvation and sanctification. Let me say it again. The reason why predestination, this focus, it might seem a little bit out of left field. It shouldn't, but it might. The reason for the focus is that we want absolute certainty relative to salvation and sanctification. Whenever we hear those words, salvation and sanctification, we want to understand the concept of predestination so that we have a certain confidence. We just read that. So we have a certain confidence in what he's going to do with us. What has been planned before we were even born. That's what he's going to do for us. And that's a certain sense of confidence. And the only way you get there is if you look at what the Word of God has to say about God's viewpoint on things. Uh, we need to continue now with the what we'll call the doctrinal groundwork we begin on Tuesday, but keep that big picture in mind. Again, here's the big picture up here on the board. <clears throat> God saves and sanctifies. Saved and sanctifies. And think of predestination. He saves us from sin. He sanctifies us to himself. These are two sides of the same coin, both guaranteed for the believer. It's impossible for a person to give another only one side of a coin. A believer receives both sides of the coin. To be delivered implies movement, a divine activity. But what is deliverance? Front side, salvation relates to sin. Back side, sanctification relates to righteousness. Deliverance may be thought of as the flipping of the coin in the life of a believer. In other words, a believer is delivered from Sin to righteousness, from the domain of darkness, domain of light, from death to life, etc., etc. That's the pattern. It's very simple, isn't it? There's sin over here, there's righteousness over here. He wants you to move you from here to here. Whether he's talking about a judicial statement, 
we might call that past tense salvation or positional sanctification. Or he's talking about an experiential type situation, which is the power of sin rather than the penalty, this kind of a thing, the present tense deliverance. Or maybe it's ultimate salvation, where it's a future tense type thing. Okay? He's trying to get you from here to here. So there's a movement. Okay? From sin to righteousness, from sin to righteousness, regardless of the perspective, and there are multiple. But that's the pattern. And it's not a difficult one. It's very straightforward. And that's his will anyways. Every believer was made to be delivered. Again, when God decrees something, it is absolute. Just a reminder, by the way, and this is his good work, so don't look, don't give me, uh, you know, the venom eyes. Sundays, Tuesdays, and tonight's lessons are all do-overs. Side note, there are close to 150 passages in the Bible that have the words obey or disobey or their derivatives. Somewhere around 150 passages. That makes obey or obedience a big deal. So the Bible has a lot to say about obedience. Hold your thumb. Go to Hebrews 13, 17. So when I say these things are do-overs, it's not me. You have to realize that. I'm just a vessel who's properly motivated, mostly for the love of God, but also for the love of you. So here's scripture on this topic, Hebrews 13, 17. What's that first word say there? Obey who? Yeah, you know who that is? Me. Obey your leaders in what? All the women are like, Tashuka! I will not submit! I already have to submit to that oaf! I'm not submitting to you! This is ridiculous! That's your choice. My job is to tell you, guess what? I'm here so that you submit to the authority that's delegated to this position. That's why I'm here. The position and the person, they're supernaturally fused, whether you like it or not. Sorry. Wish I was more handsome or, I don't know, what, funnier? I don't know, what's your problem? What's your, what's your problem? What is it? Anyways. Obey your leaders and submit to them. I didn't say that. That's the word of God. You can choose to obey and disobey the word. That's between you and the Lord. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. All I can say on that is it's hard enough to do this job. I don't need grief, right? It's really... Uh, I don't have to say too much on that. But here's what he wants me to say in general. When you hear the word obey, when you hear a command like, hey, do this lesson over again. Don't look at, the, don't look at me personally. Look at what the word has to say. Submitting to your pastor, our Lord's authority has been delegated to his under-shepherds for the sake of his sheep. It's the sheep's job to obey his authority, not challenge it. If you lose faith in it, then leave. Honestly, I'm telling you, if you lose faith in this vessel, then you need to leave. 
because you're going to be hurt. You're not going to grow, right? And I don't want to be in your way. So if you lose faith in this vessel, then you should leave. Otherwise, seek guidance in humility. If you stay, then be authority-oriented. If you stay, then obey. But make your choice. And you know how that goes. In a ministry like this one, 99% of the time, the person is just looking for an excuse. They want both. They want both, but we won't get into that. In any case, he wants me to remind you of this little sidebar, submitting to your pastor. Our Lord's authority has been delegated to his under-shepherds for the sake of his sheep. It's the sheep's job to obey his authority, not challenge it. If you lose faith in it, then leave. Otherwise, seek guidance in humility. But don't be the lukewarm person. That's the very worst thing. The perfect example is when I say to you, listen to a lesson over again. I'm certainly not saying that for my benefit. Am I? Why would it, you know, other than what I see, other than what I see not happening in those who refuse to listen, right? What happens? Their growth is stunted. And that breaks my heart. So other than that part, it's certainly not for my benefit. It's for your benefit. It's for you. In other words, it's for your benefit to obey, not mine. I'm not some megalomaniac, some ego. Ma- I could, you know what I'm saying? I got enough responsibilities. I had enough responsibilities before I got behind a pulpit. Right? These were thrust. So it's not me trying to, you know, run your life or be like, you know, the principal. You know, I'll come in my office, you. You know. <laughs> Seriously? You think that's my, my, my gig here? Not this guy. So if you choose to disobey or refuse to receive his grace blessing, then you aren't rejecting me. You are rejecting the will of God. And you should feel the full weight of that. If the Spirit motivates me to say, these lessons are do-overs, and you say, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God. I know this. So even though some of you do cause me pain, my heart is ultimately protected. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4.7. 1 Thessalonians 4.7. This is how someone in my position survives. Thank God. We have little friendly reminders in Scripture to tell us straight up, yes, you've been given the authority, but don't take it personally. It has nothing to do with you. Their problems with authority orientation have absolutely nothing to do with you. They might say it has to do with you. It really has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with that person. 1 Thessalonians 4.7 For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. That's what he called us for. To what? To sanctify us. To set us apart. Why? We just talked about that. To bring glory to himself. That's what this is all about. He saves, he sanctifies. He saves, he sanctifies. He saves, he sanctifies. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. 
You see? He's not... People that reject a, a sturdy, upright, honest man of integrity standing behind a pulpit, they're not rejecting that man. They're rejecting God. So why is he saying this? Because if you're not listening to what I'm saying, when I give you that directive, listen to these things over again. You should listen to them over again. And if you don't, which is your free will, then that's between you and the Lord. I used to get really hurt when I was more immature behind the pulpit. We all grow up, right? I used to be like, man, why? what the heck, man? And I would take it a little bit more personal than I should have. And that was wrong. But I don't do that anymore. I've grown up. And I say, you know, after about 150,000 times of being ignored, you say, what the heck, man? It can't be me. And it's not me. It's you guys. And you have to make those choices for yourself. So I realize that you're not rejecting me. And you should realize that as well, that you're not rejecting a man. You're rejecting God. All right. So just a friendly reminder in, or on obedience to the divinely delegated authority of the pastor. Let's get back to business. On Tuesday, we established this working framework up here in the board. We had sort of two parts to it, and we started dissecting the first. It was salvation and sanctification perspectives. First, salvation perspectives. I give you gods up there as, a, you know, as unity, I like to say, as one perspective, because from, from his perspective, it's already a done deal, and it's about salvation from sin. Remember, salvation always has a tie to sin. Man's perspective, though, we might carve it up this way in the Scripture, three tenses, positional salvation from the penalty of sin, experiential salvation from the power of sin, and ultimate salvation from the very presence of sin. So there's sort of three tenses we can carve out. And then to complement that, since he saves and sanctifies us, we have sanctification perspectives. God's perspective is, you know, he's going to set you apart for his purposes. That's what it means to be sanctified. But man's perspective, we might, since we're under the construct of time and he gave it to us and we sort of bitwise learn and grow, we might call out sanctification as three phases. Positionally, that's imputed righteousness. That's a judicial statement, again, that has to do with um, the penalty. Uh, Remember, sanctification and salvation are very much related. Experientially, imparted righteousness. It's a daily sanctification in view, and then ultimate sanctification, complete righteousness, and that's eternally. So salvation has to do with sin. Sanctification has to do with righteousness. From this domain to this domain, from sin to righteousness, from darkness to light. That's the movement, regardless of the tense of the phase. Make sense? All right. So from God's perspective, as part of his divine decree, we are already saved, sanctified, and as Paul says in Romans 8.30, glorified. With that, let's drill down again. I'm going to go quickly because these are points of review. The first point up on the board was under uh, salvation perspectives, positional salvation, again, from the penalty of sin. So if you're a believer, this is behind you. That's why we call it past tense So positional salvation, past tense, we might look at this way. 
God's will is to save, deliver the whole world. We know that from John 3.16, for God so loved the whole world. From the guilt and penalty of sin. However, the gate is narrow that leads to life. Matthew 7.13-14. So not all are saved. A person is positionally saved when they believe, are justified, and righteousness is imputed judicially to their account. We looked at some uh, scripture there. Here's a highlight scripture. 2 Timothy 1, 9, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purposes and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Again, that's how God saves us from the penalty of sin. But remember, you've been predestined not just to be saved, but also to be saved and sanctified. So this is like one piece of a bigger picture. And that's why we started off with predestination as a bigger picture okay because that's god's will you think of predestination that's like more of the fullness of god's will okay but when we're carving out scripture like this you know positional salvation we're looking at something that happens again that's how god saves us from the penalty of sin positional salvation past tense Next, we have it on God's word that he saves us daily from the power of sin. Also, we call that experiential salvation. That's from the power of sin. We might be delivered from the penalty. We might even have a new creature like we talked about last night that really only wants to obey. It only can obey. That's all it can do. But we also have a flesh. We also have two other enemies that frustrate this whole thing. That's the evidence of the power of sin still in our lives. And we're not rid of that until we either die or are raptured, okay, when we're pulled out of here. So, again, experiential from the power of sin. So on that note, experiential salvation is more the present tense. It's what we are living in right now. Experiential salvation, I've taught it as, you know, God saves us daily. It's not just a one-time event, and we should think that way, that he saves us, delivers us daily from this way though the power of sin not just the judicial or the uh, the penalty of sin god wills to save deliver his children from the power of sin by means of faith this is how he goes about doing it psalm 34 17 and 19 i'll give you the amplified in a moment however the vestiges of sin the leftovers if you would frustrate a believer's deliverance through persistent influence we do have three enemies the flesh Romans 7, 14 to 25, Satan, James 4, 7, the world, 1 John 5, 4 to 5. We also looked at ample scripture to substantiate the point on the board. Here's Psalm 34, 17 to 19 in the Amplified. Again, this is how he delivers us. He saves us by uh, faith or through faith. When the righteous cry for help, Psalm 34, 17 to 19, the Amplified. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and rescues them from all their distress and troubles. The Lord is near to the heartbroken, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit, contrite in heart, truly sorry for their sin. Many hardships and perplexing circumstances confront the righteous, but the Lord rescues him from them all. You see a few things going on there, all related to sin. What are we supposed to, 1 John 1, 9 says, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to what? We confess our sins. 
right? God will deliver the humble. He gives grace to who? The humble. So do you want to you be saved daily? You want to be washed by the word? Think of um, Ephesians 5. You want to be washed with the word? Then you also have to what? Confess what is true. It's not always confessing sin. You confess Jesus as Lord. Sometimes you're having a sketchy day. And the thing, you know, the best thing you can do is confess that what? God is love. Confess it. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Confess that what? You've been given a heart that's able to love God through Christ. Confess those things too. Don't just always go on your knees to confess sin. Although when you're talking about being saved daily, sin is certainly front and center. Okay? Again, that's what we call experiential salvation. It's a present tense issue. God wills to save, deliver his children from the power of sin by means of faith. However, the vestiges of sin frustrate a believer's deliverance through persistent influence of the enemies up here on the board. I thought all the I thought all bugs were dead. I got one flying around in here. But he's like slow moving, probably confused. He's supposed to be like hibernating somewhere and he's like, what, what am I doing? You know? Like a, if you wake up a bear, I guess, in the winter. He's like, what's going on? It's way too early. That's him. I don't know where he went, but anyways. It's irritating me. Philippians two, twelve to thirteen. Up here on the board. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. There's there's Integrity 101. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, We're talking about experiential or present tense salvation there. And then finally, and I'll slow down a little bit here, we get to ultimate salvation, which is from the presence of sin. And of course, we're talking about after this life as we know it. We get raptured or we're, uh, we die, we're um, saved from the very presence of sin. There's no sin in heaven, in other words. So remember, when we think about salvation, uh, it is tied to sin specifically. And that's what we're talking about here. Hence our previous key principle from the start of class, deliverance. What is deliverance? The front side, salvation, relates to sin. The back side, sanctification, relates to righteousness. And deliverance is really a movement. Okay, It's a movement. But salvation is definitely tied to sin, sanctification to righteousness. And I hope I was thinking about this as I was going through my notes because it felt like he was oscillating in and out. You know, he gives us high, he gives us big picture, then we dive down. Because going down into like, you know, experiential salvation uh, and ultimate salvation and making a distinction between salvation and sanctification ultimately in time, even positionally, well, we're getting a little bit more granular. It's not talking about predestination, uh, you know, foreordination, election, reconciliation, propitiation, expiation. It's not getting all these like terms that get lower and lower and lower. What he's doing, he's oscillating. I call it pulsing. I learned it as pulsing um, in industry, but it's basically high level, low level, high level, low level, so that you don't lose the big picture. That's what he's been doing. He's giving you some low level stuff, 
And then he says, let's put it back into big picture. All right, let's go down a little bit and let's put it back into big picture. And all I can think about, um, and I'm hoping you see how he's been painting this picture in your souls, it's essentially like an artist who sketches an outline of a portrait. And if you watch him, except for that guy, remember that guy on like Channel 2 with the fro? He'd be like, I think I'll just throw a, a tree in right here. He's like, Phew. it's like, he's like, I'm done. Like, what? Dude, I just got my paintbrush out and I squirted my toothpaste on the easel thing, right? And he's like, I just got to do this thing. Well, I guess if you can manage that hair, you can do paintings in 15 minutes. You know what I'm talking about? Bob Ross, right? Everybody know? I think he died. Anyways. He's not around anymore. He's not doing that thing. He's not, he's not belittling us on Channel 2 anymore. I guess I'm not going to make it as a painter, obviously, Bob. Thanks. Thanks for that. But you saw, except for him, who just threw up completed pictures, most, most, and I watched something on Van Gogh the other day, um, most artists would go in, sketch something. You know, even if they're sitting, they're going to do someone's portrait, they would sketch them with some kind of pencil or uh, maybe charcoal or something like that. And then they would step back, and then they would go in and do the neckline with some color, and they would step back, and you know, this, and they would go back and forth. So essentially, like an artist, they go back, and we're going. He's taking us back and forth, you know, close in and focusing on this color and that color, and you know, painting between the lines and all that good stuff. And after each section of the painting is completed, a painter steps back and absorbs the big picture view of the painting to see how what he's just added specifically enriches the overall canvas. That's what the Spirit's doing this evening. He's giving us big picture, then diving in, then backing out again so that we don't lose sight of the big picture. For after all, it's the big picture that truly matters most, isn't it? It truly is. Let me show you what I mean. You know, and excuse the other stuff. This is the best example I could find on the Internet. You know, this would be sort of the way someone start off, right? That kind of looks like me a little bit, doesn't it? Very strong jawline. <laughs> I think he's part cannibal. Anyways, this would be how they would draw them out. And then, look, over time, you see what happens? You fill in. So you start with this bone structure, this outline, and then over time you go in, you might color in the chin. You find the right colors, green, brown, tan in there. You gotta go mix it up. You know, you come back, you fill in the chin. You step back and say, how's that gonna work? You go in, you do his nose, you do his eyebrows, you step back, how's that looking? Am I good so far? Is the tone right? Is the light balance all right? They go in and out, in and out, in and out. Right? It might even be layered too. I'm not a painter, so these are just the things I remember from my buddy Bob Ross. It's not a tree, you probably didn't paint it. So. so notice how you were still able to identify the person even before the portrait was complete. I mean, you can see this person, right? And you can see that it is a person. You're not going to mistake that for anything but a person. And the more color and features that are sort of added to the canvas, the more and more it looks. And you have a greater picture of that person. Well, that's the way that we learn about Jesus Christ. That salvation proper 
we have a straw man portrait of him. But as we are experientially saved and sanctified, we are given by grace a much more vivid picture of our Lord and Savior and Deliverer. The point is that we, as we learn more and more about the Word, we oscillate back and forth, big picture, close up, big picture, close up, etc. And that's all I'm really saying is that's what he's doing patiently with all of us. He's saying, go in, go pick up some ground, groundwork stuff, some, you know, some uh, nuts and bolts and what have you, and then step back and make sure that it fits. Because most of you know by now that if you spend all your time in the weeds, when you go to come back out, nothing works. Because you may have done a disservice by not checking to see if things fit in the big picture, which means someone can pretty much sell you anything at that point. Oh, just trust me, it fits. Hmm. All right, let's finish up with our final tense of salvation, specifically how God saves us from the very presence of sin. That takes us to ultimate salvation from the presence of sin. We might sort of add color this way. Again, it's a future tense. God wills to save, deliver his children from the very presence of sin for all of eternity. Salvation is consummated at the end of world human history. Revelation 19.1, heaven will be without the presence of sin. Revelation 21.22-27, and then some substantiating scripture, Romans 13.11, Ephesians 2.5-7, Philippians 1.6, 1 Peter 1.3-5, 1 John 3.1-2. Go to uh, Revelation 19.1 to amplify the fact that salvation is consummated at the end of world human slash human history. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord, frankly. It's His domain. It's, it's all done as far as He's concerned. We have victory in Christ, right? As far as God's concerned, it's a done deal. Revelation 19.1, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Hallelujah, right? This is a done deal. From God's perspective, it's a done deal. It's as good as done. And that's the perspective he's trying to give you. Heaven will be minus the presence of sin. Go to Revelation 21.22. Revelation 21.22. Revelation 21.22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the of the moon. This is the New Jerusalem, obviously, or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, no sin or sinners, Nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, no sinners. All sinners are going to the lake of fire in terms of salvation. The unsaved. 
Okay? So there's not going to be any sin, in other words, in heaven. Again, that's to amplify the point on the board. God wills to save His children from the very presence of sin for all of eternity. Salvation is consummated at the end of world human history. Heaven will be without the presence of sin. Let's look at our supporting scripture now. Go to Romans 13.11. Romans 13.11. Romans 13.11. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, ultimate salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. So there's a time when this sin issue is gone. How awesome is that going to be? Seriously. Just, I just think about my own flesh. How bad that, not even counting Satan, who's just awful in the world, which is getting worse. My own flesh, I mean, it's, it's horrific. I don't imagine that. It's awful. I mean, is anybody, do I get an amen from somebody else? Yeah, it's bad. It ain't getting better. It's getting worse. I get another amen? All right, so I'm not alone. Good. So ultimately, we're going to be rid of this body of death, as Paul would say. <clears throat> Excuse me. Go to Ephesians 2.5. And that, that should, the fact that you're laughing allows you to shake it off. Like, I actually believe this. I mean, you know, I've... I'm just going to say this. I've been accused of being intense in the past, in my past life at times. <laughs> but I believe that, I truly believe this. Whether you see it or not is not the issue. You see my, a man with responsibility. Um, I, don't, I don't think that life is to be taken too seriously, if that makes sense. It really shouldn't. I mean, I hope you know what I'm saying. You shouldn't be, look, not everything is a crisis. Does that make sense? Not everything's a cri- nothing is a crisis. The crisis is behind you. You've already been saved. That's the crisis. That's the only real crisis, which is why the gospel is all that matters. So there's really no crisis, but it seems like even believers have, it seems like every day is a new crisis. Or they look at the fact that they have this crappy body and it's like they're surprised that they are a sinner. And it's a crisis to them. It shouldn't be a crisis. Honestly. God loves you so much that he saved you. So why would you be in crisis mode when he's not? So just think about that. We, we have to... That's what big picture does. It gives you that... Oh, wait a minute. What am I, what am I doing? Seriously, what am I all flizzing out over? All right, so my body's ridiculous. It wants to do ridiculous things that I don't want to do. Sound like Paul, right? Romans 7. I'm doing things I don't want to do, right? It's like, stop it. Stop it. Stop, make, stop doing that to me. But it's not a crisis. It's not a crisis because eventually I'm not going to be dealing with this. You're not going to be dealing with your ridiculous body either. Food for thought. Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, that's a reference to ultimate salvation, in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's why all we're going to really want to do is just bring glory to him in heaven. Like, this is ridiculous. This is phenomenal. Go to Philippians 1.6, an old favorite of ours, right? It shows us the direction, may not speak necessarily or specifically only to ultimate salvation, but the direction is certainly towards the loss of all sin in our lives or the absence of sin in our lives, which is really salvation sanctification, deliverance, consummated. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's a reference to the divine direction of all salvation is obviously ultimate salvation. Go to 1 Peter 1.3. 1 Peter 1.3. This is why he gives us scripture, folks. He's, he wants us to be encouraged. He wants you to, look, he wants you to obey because you're encouraged. We talked about that last night, and I, I went on for about five minutes, and then Monica says it said it in like two seconds and embarrassed me in front of everybody, made me look bad. I'm just kidding. But it, we talked about obedience last night at, at length, truth be told. And how when you're saved, you're given an obedient heart. Religion will tell you you have to become, you have to work to be obedient. That's what religion does. Do this. Be obedient. Get obedient. No, you are obedient. That's all the new nature can do is be obedient. So if you're thinking wisely, and this is wisdom speaking, if you start thinking wisely about obedience, it's really about not falling into temptation. It's really about not disobeying. The commands are really, once you've been made new, and that's all the new creature can do is obey, when you think about it, it's not about you obeying. A lot of people, it's, you know, achievement-oriented people, they're always like, you know, well, Philippians 4.13, to him I can do anything, you know, and they get kind of contorted a little bit, and they still think that to obey is sort of, an achievement to be grasped when you've already been made an obedient new creature. So the reality is more like James, uh, what is it, 4-7, resist the devil. It's resist the temptation to disobey because by your very nature, you're obedient. That nature, the one that can only be obedient, is the one that's going to heaven, folks. It's this, it's this thing. It's just awful. So think about it that way. Don't turn obedience into a works program. That's what religion wants you to do. Obey, 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 and God's pleased. No, that's putting God, you know, on a works program. You already have an obedient heart. Stop listening to your flesh, which really all it wants to do is disobey. For some of you, it's a very fine line. I'm convinced of it. It's a very fine line because the flesh is right there saying, 
No, you, you go ahead and do obedience. You go ahead and do obedience. That's just another achievement that the flesh can sort of go, uh-huh. Even though I'm like, God, a little creature credit for me because I'm doing obedience. That's different. That's religion compared to being obedient. I hate to sound quirky, but, you know, sort of connecting with the new nature, so to speak, and focusing and identifying with the new nature, which is only obedient, and learning to resist disobedience, learning to resist temptation to be disobedient. Does that make sense? It's a very fine line. So you should think about that. Um, But in any case, in heaven we're going to be completely obedient all the time because that's who we are. We're not going to have to do obedience, are we? See? So when you think about how he's trying to sanctify you now, it's not about doing obedience. It's not about achievement. It's about being who he made you. It's about realizing who you are in Christ right now. That's where the big picture helps. Right? Religion says, don't look at the big picture. Do this little protocol. Do this little thing. Do this thing. Do this. Do, 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 do. Even learning the word of God is like, all right, got to go to class. Got to do obedience. I know, God, you're with me. That's what's making me drive. It's you, baby. Yeah. Right? And the flesh is like, yeah, a little creature credit. Yeah, see? And you're on a works program, you don't even realize it. And you're doing it in the name of the Lord. That's different, isn't it? I think I'll stop there because that's a heavy thing to think about. And you've got, you've got three days to think about that and listen to this again. <laughs> Just saying. Just throwing it out there. Amen? Life is good. All right, amen. Love you. Bow our heads. Hey, thanks for responding. <laughs> Appreciate that. Not even one person. The fly. The fly landed on my cheek. He's like, yeah, I love you too. Thanks, buddy. My only friend, obviously. <laughs> Bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.